Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. My name is Scott Chaloner and you join us on a sunny day here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First and foremost on today's show, I'm delighted to have Vijay Kanagasundaram alongside me. Vijay is the co-founder and director of WIS Accountancy, WIS Umbrella and WIS Mortgages and Insurance Services. Um, Vijay, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on the programme. Thank you ever so much for having me on, Scott. Really excited to be on this programme. No, it is exciting. It certainly is a lovely day for it. And it's a real pleasure to welcome you onto the uh, airwaves with us. Um, Normally um, on the programme, we would dive straight into the topic of leadership and really bring that into focus. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, let's start there. Um, It has, I'm sure you'll agree, proven to be one of the most significant challenges for leaders of our time. Um, But how has it affected you and your organisation during the last few months? Uh, impacted quite significantly, Scott. The uh, main reason being, uh, as an accountant, I worked with a lot of SMEs and a lot of contractors, freelancers mm. in the in the in market. A lot of my freelancers, contractors were were not able to get any any else from the government except for CGRS or the furlough scheme, um, as you know. We managed to submit all the CGRS polo claims for nearly for under contractors uh, within within my client base on a, on a pro bono basis, purely to help them out and you know come out of this situation. Um, extremely thankful for my team, you know, putting extra hours, working from home with all the difficulties, um, you know, in this in this pandemic. So very grateful for my team. We also made sure we communicated to our clients about the different helps and schemes that are available. Uh, for example, you know, the grants, the, the loans, etc. So we kept on communicating to our clients about all these different schemes so they can get some help. Uh, sadly, a couple of my clients who had COVID, uh, you know, suffered quite significantly and, you know, they have a prolonged health condition. So helping with them on a long-term kind of solution for them too. Uh, so it, it, it's it's uh, yeah it's, it's quite uh, quite eventful last six months I would say. Um, personally, I've got a young family, so you know, homeschooling, juggling work, and you know um, attending client needs. It it was quite uh, you know I would say very eventful uh, for six months. Uh, now that school has started, it, it it's becoming a bit bit more routine, bit more regular. But I still feel sorry for a lot of the contractors, freelancers who lost their contracts due to COVID. You know, I, I sincerely hope the government will listen to uh, these contractors uh, plus the small company directors and, you know, help some way or other to, you know, get them out from this uh, unfortunate situation. Indeed, for many businesses who have found it more difficult to adapt to meet the challenges of the pandemic, it is still a very difficult and a very sensitive time, of course. So, of course, all of our thoughts do go out to uh, those companies affected. Um, For yourselves, um, Vijay, and how you've sort of adapted to meet the challenges of this new reality, is there anything that you would say that this experience has actually taught you and you can take forward maybe as a positive from um, all of the um, sort of difficulties of this time? Yes, uh, the couple of positives that we came across um, uh, COVID is the digitalization in the importance of being digital. So, you know, for example, if you're an accountant, uh, moving from uh, moving from 
more safer to let pay something that you know we we encountered during during this and other thing other important thing uh, as accountants or any other advice uh, what we realize is communicating to the client so 90% of the time if you listen to our clients and you know understand their problems i think that effectively kind of helping them in some way so i think one thing we kind of understood um, the last six months is you know keeping uh constant communication with our clients and you know helping them to kind of get out of this situation or you know take one week at a time or you know one shot don't short term goal at a time so two two key key things that uh key positive out of go with is one uh, digitalization which uh, which really helping not only accountants but you know across all the other industries and also the of the communication while how important is to you know, have this communication quite regular constant manner to you know drive your business Mm, you're absolutely right. Keeping the uh, communication channels open during a time such as this has been incredibly important. And as you've sort of adjusted to that sort of leadership from a distance, as it were, just taking everything remotely, um, has that been an easy transition for you or has it been a little bit more of a challenge? Uh, it is a bit of a challenge uh, for me personally because I like to meet uh, all my clients face to face. So I tend to go to my client side quite regularly and you know mm. meet for a coffee or a lunch etc since the lockdown that was the most difficult uh, thing that I've kind of came across not meeting clients having that face to face interaction so I tend to do a lot more zoom calls a lot more you know face to face calls uh, to kind of you know the, get out of that but it, it, it is one of those difficult things where you know you don't sit in front of a client and try to explain them or you know have a chit chat about their business etc that i found it quite uh, you know quite hard except that i think um, you know thanks to all this uh, digital uh, technological uh, stuff you know it, it was okay and i couldn't i couldn't i couldn't manage without uh, you know, any of this uh, any of those online meetings for sure so you describe your sort of everyday leadership style if we call it that as a very sort of people orientated face to face sort of style Yes. So the two things that I've uh, kind of encountered, but as I said, the client side, the second side is the the staff uh, who work from home. So you know you need to understand as a leader, they have their normal uh, life, they have their kids and they have their families. So we were quite flexible with our staff, uh, telling them you know there was no routine for them. They're more task driven. So you know if you're if you are okay to do the homeschooling with the kids in the morning and if you are okay to catch up with the work in the evening we were quite flexible with that that actually uh, that actually motivated a lot of our staff because uh, you know they they understood how important uh, to work for a company which is not driven by you know the paycheck that you get but but the flexibility and the opportunity you have to work around your lifestyle so you know personally i encourage my team to you know work flexibly go for a walk you know do something to keep your both mental and physical health in check uh, that that's one thing that you know i yeah. i personally kind of encountered you know some kind of anxiety some kind of you know stress during this time and i didn't want that to go to my team so you know constant team meetings um you know having birthday trip parties on zoom simple things uh, to just to you know keep your team motivated 
Mm. It's certainly brought the importance of mental health and well-being back into the limelight this period, hasn't it? And it seems to me that you certainly view that as an important element of leadership as well, not just in terms of safeguarding your own, but also most importantly, that of the people around you as well and making sure that they're motivated and in the right headspace. Absolutely, absolutely. I think the, we tend to focus more on the physical health of uh, things, but you know, very much, uh, very much less um, focus on the mental health of uh, mental health. Of, I think so. You know, I've, I've kind of focused on that during the last six months, and you know, personally, I've taken a meditation and things like that, and I'm kind of focusing, uh, passing that to my team members, saying, you know, you need to really start focusing on your mental side of things. Because, you know, work is there, you know, personal life is there. You need to strike a balance to have a, you know, good, healthy lifestyle. Because, you know, one, one important thing out of this COVID is that life is quite short. And you need to live, you know, live your life to the fullest, right? That, that's the most important thing. And point of worrying about every small thing out there, rather than looking at the big picture and, you know, getting the best out of your life. That, that's personally something that I've, I realized during this goal, we have kind of inspired my team to kind mm. of focus on the same thing. And of course, as a leader, you regularly take on that responsibility of motivating and inspiring your team let alone during a time of crisis such as this but when you're the leader who's doing all of that when you need a little bit of inspiration for yourself what is it that really gets you motivated particularly during a time of crisis as well as in the everyday yeah uh, two main things one thing is the because my my business as you know it's a, it's a partnership with two other uh, two other directors wis means bj Ifteka and Sunet. So I think that partnership kind of really helped me because, you know, we, we would pass ideas, we'd have regular catch-ups. So if somebody's, you know, over at work, we'll try to delegate to other person. So that really helped uh, our business. Um, so we kind of, you know, shared a lot of our responsibilities. And the second thing is having a, you know, supporting family. Right? That's, that's very important too. So, you know, uh, spending that time with the kids and time with your partner that kind of motivated me and, you know, passing, you know, kind of helped me to, uh, you know, have a really good um, life during this uh, pandemic. And considering that our time on the programme is now beginning to uh, draw to its close, VJ, one thing I would like to discuss just before we do wrap things up is the future, particularly the next year, because we're going to have to continue to persist with the new normal until we get a cure or a vaccine for COVID-19. And this next year will likely be dominated by that. Um, But what is it that you're really hoping for WS to achieve during that period of time? And indeed, where do you see the business this time next year? Um, so our main uh, aim was to become like a one-stop shop for all kind of financial needs, like accountancy, mortgages, umbrella, belt, protection, etc. With a reasonable price, so you know we like to be like a market leader uh, by introducing a lot of digital channels and you know cutting costs through digitalization and to and to pass that benefit back to the client. So in a year's time, we really want to. To become more digital that that's my personal kind of ambition and the second thing is rather than you know growth on numbers i like to have a growth on uh, motivation the quality of work etc that that's my key focus that's the key focus of you know, all all co-directors for next one year is to focus on doing what we're doing good and focus on that rather than you know 
going on a massive growth thing. So I think, you know, the economic um, forecast is not great anyway next year. So I don't think we'll have a massive growth on sales, etc. But personally, I, I would like government to kind of step and help SMEs. I think SMEs and uh, micro business are the backbone of this uh, economy. They're the ones who got us back uh, as a country out of 2009 crisis. Um, I'm quite disappointed and sad to see government is not looking into the small businesses. So, you know, if anyone from the government is into this, I urge them to kind of focus on SMEs, but they need a lot of help from the government. So, you know, if, if any help comes from the government, that will really, really help the UK economy to recover faster than, you know, all the predictions. Certainly going to be an interesting time, isn't it? So let's just keep our fingers crossed that any trajectory is going to be the way that we want it to be going from here on in. Um, Positive trajectory, that is, in all but COVID-19 cases and indeed fatalities. Um, Vijay, I have to say, it's been a real, real pleasure having you joining us on the programme this afternoon, and I really do appreciate your time in that. Um, But also, just given how enlightening this has been today, I think it would be wonderful to catch up in future and have you back on the programme in the next few months, just to see how things are coming along and we can also reassess then just at what stage the country is at as well absolutely thank you ever so much scott for having me on the program and i'm excited to be on this program and looking forward to hearing from you thank you i'm really looking forward to touching base again and in the meantime until then vj do continue to take care and stay safe with all still going on you too scott take care bye I was speaking on the programme today to Vijay Kanagasundaram, co-founder and director of WIS. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with former England cricket captain Sir Andrew Strauss. Um, During his professional career, Sir Andrew joined an illustrious club of just three England captains to have secured the ashes both at home and away in Australia, as well as racking up the the second highest number of test victories for an England England skipper in history history. Um, Since retiring from playing, Sir Andrew spent a stint in charge of the um, England and Wales Cricket Board as its Director of Cricket, um, but also he has become a champion for mental health and charitable causes along the way as well, most importantly. I do hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan relished the opportunity to speak with Sir Andrew himself, and all of that is of course coming up next. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White, and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year, so congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, Now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dreskothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? (laughs) Um, Well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dreskothic who gave me that nickname, Ah. it was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mm. mo- at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? 
Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to... See your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance. Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex. All my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later, I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life. Of and then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, I'm, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So, it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business, um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsex bef- you know, a couple of years beforehand and really helped m- me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis my wife, Ruth, played a, a huge mm. role, you know, just in terms of, because I, th- I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it and you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international yes. cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because you know i think it's easy to forget how 
how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long, and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, the, the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f- I think it was in the final day of the series, and I looked at him, and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You know, and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point though, because there's there's so there were so many people back in two thousand five that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that i got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating you know i felt like i'd really arrived as well a done. celebrity yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night unfortunately but I, I did ask for a highlight and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored 100 in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure. And that, that was one that, you know, that, that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, as you were lucky enough, privilege, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on, up to, and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um... Well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th- there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that that was a big part of it for me. Um, You know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership – I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing 
a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. It you lets. know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda and you know if and when that happens that that should be a problem for a leadership and if it isn't a problem then you're not doing your but job absolutely properly. um and with, with all of that in mind actually uh and perhaps this is a bit of a wing question but what advice would you give to others in a similar position leading a team um being looked up to what would be the key advice you'd give to them and that you couldn't really do without it just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so. Okay. Yes. Uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place and they... Uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, it doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you. And they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of cricket at the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was, or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And... Were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hoyam Sol in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, 
And I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. It's quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. And yeah. the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, and we had to move... With, in fact, we didn't have to move at times. We need to get ahead of the time. <laughs> so, you know, we had to completely shift out both our philosophy, but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky... Uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan, who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what have the England captaincies have done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was. I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it, a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground, right. and so you know you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves. Mm. And often, you know, in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off, and uh, I don't know about you, but when watching that World Cup final again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who again might not have given cricket a second look who have now become avid cricket fans I know of some it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be yeah it was an incredible day wasn't it I mean I think in our vision like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of you know emotion that went with it mm. no one could have dreamt no, uh, how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so <laughs> was, was I. Yeah, actually, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through and so after she died in December uh, 2018 uh, I came back and launched the foundation with two focuses number one to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer these mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers um, five to seven thousand people each year in this country are diagnosed with these no one knows why they're getting them 
um, but they're on the increase, and it's women, young women, that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top ten cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare; it's probably a misnomer. But it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards, if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and, yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though... We're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape, or form, and um, you know, we, I think as a society we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas, and especially around mental health, and we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think it's, it, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year, so if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the, uh, I mean, we've got. A couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it, last year. You could, you, Whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, it felt so much... Uh, love and support there and then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised and um we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing not just the the day at lords um i even saw some of the stuffiest members of the mcc andrew wearing red uh, wearing red so it w w what an extraordinary thing yeah well a lot um, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> anyway no, i think but um <laughs> no it, absolutely no they, they were right behind us and um you know we we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. Andrew, I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown... Um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important 
step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that. Um, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are, you know, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As, a, as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to, I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh sh of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.